A reading from Isaiah. Thus says the Lord, keep justice and do righteousness, for soon my salvation will come and my righteousness be revealed. Blessed is the man who does this and the son of man who holds it fast, who keeps the Sabbath, not profaning it, and keeps his hand from doing any evil. Let not the foreigner who has joined himself to the Lord say, the Lord will surely separate me from his people. And let not the eunuch say, behold, I am a dry tree. For thus says the Lord to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths, who choose the things that please me and hold fast my covenant, I will give in my house and within my walls a monument and a name better than sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that shall not be cut off. And the foreigners who join themselves to the Lord to minister to him, to love the name of the Lord and to be his servants, everyone who keeps the Sabbath and does not profane it and holds fast my covenant, these I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar, for my house shall be called a house of prayer for all peoples. The Lord God, who gathers the outcasts of Israel, declares, I will gather yet others to him besides those already gathered. The word of the Lord. Our New Testament readings this morning are from Romans and then from 1 Peter. Now I am speaking to you Gentiles, inasmuch then as I am an apostle to the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry in order somehow to make my fellow Jews jealous and thus save some of them. For if their rejection means the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance mean but life from the dead? If the dough offered as first fruits is holy, so is the whole lump. And if the root is holy, so are the branches. But if some of the branches were broken off, and you, although a wild olive shoot, were grafted in among the others and now share in the nourishing root of the olive tree, do not be arrogant toward the branches. If you are, remember, it is not you who support the root, but the root that supports you. Then you will say, branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. That is true. They were broken off because of their unbelief, but you stand fast through faith. So do not become proud, but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, neither will he spare you. Note then the kindness and the severity of God. Severity towards, toward those who have fallen, but God's kindness to you provided you continue in his kindness. Otherwise, you too will be cut off. And even they, if they do not continue in their unbelief, will be grafted in, for God has the power to graft them in again. For if you were cut from what is by nature a wild olive tree and grafted, contrary to nature, into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these, the natural branches, be grafted back in into their own olive tree? From, second, from First Peter. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. 
Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. The word of the Lord. This is the holy gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to St. Matthew. Glory to you, Lord Christ. And Jesus went away from there and withdrew to the district of Tyre and Sidon. And behold, a Canaanite woman from that region came out and was crying, Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. My daughter is severely oppressed by a demon. But he did not answer her a word. And his disciples came and begged him, saying, Send her away, for she is crying out after us. He answered, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. But she came and knelt before him, saying, Lord, help me. And he answered, It is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. She said, Yes, Lord, yet even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. Then Jesus answered her, O woman, great is your faith. Be it done for you as you desire. And her daughter was healed instantly. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise you, Lord Christ. Morning. Have a seat, everybody. Um, before I open in prayer, I, I did want to do something. I, I wanted to offer a slight uh, just preface to my sermon this morning. I wanted to just say that I'm going to be touching a little bit today. It's not my whole sermon, but a little bit today on a, a delicate issue of anti-Semitism. So I just wanted to let you know that before I started in. Um, I don't know why I felt I needed to do that. I just felt that. So uh, <laughs> the spirit, I suppose, lead me. So anyway, with that, let's, give me, let's pray and we'll get started. Our God, we thank you for the ways that you have led us, the ways that you love us. And we thank you for your beautiful story that starts with Abraham and comes to us. And we just... We are so excited to be a part of it, and we pray that you would give us open hearts, and above all, that we would be humble. In Jesus' name, amen. Earlier this week, I told uh, our beloved pastor, Christian, who is not here, unfortunately, I could have had a nice little jibe with him, that I wanted to open my sermon with a quote from C.S. Lewis, and he informed me that we have already reached our C.S. Lewis quota <laughs> for the year. Um, so instead, I told him that I would be quoting from an Anglican author who smoked a pipe and went by the name of Jack. Um, and he approved of that. Now, I'm kidding, of course, and Jack was how C.S. Lewis was known to his friends, and you can't get too much C.S. Lewis. And I actually did quote him in my last sermon, but here's a quote from his book, uh, Letters to Malcolm, that I feel can serve as a good entry point for our discussion this morning of this passage in Romans. It would be rash to say that there is any prayer which God never grants, but the strongest candidate is the prayer we might express in the single word, Encore. How should the infinite repeat himself? All space and time are too little for him. Our passage this morning from Romans, I think, wrestles with how God works and how we react to it. Paul wrote this letter in the 50s AD, so that means probably 20 to 30 years have passed since the time of the Gospels. And it seems clear that this church had a significant number of Jews and Gentiles. We see Paul deal with issues related to both races often through this whole book. But then in chapters 9 through 11, Paul focuses with even more resolve on this relationship between Jew and Gentile. 
And he does it in such a way that it calls attention to a bigger story, the place that both Jew and Gentile have in the story of God's salvation of the world. Pastor Christian brought us into that last week as he looked at Paul's heart, his sorrowful heart for those who he called his his kinsmen according to the flesh and their lack of faith in the Messiah. And this week he has a word about that and about the heart of the Gentiles. With that in mind, I want us to use our imaginations for a second. Imagine you are a first century Jewish person who believes in Yeshua. Your favorite time of year is Passover, the feasting, the gathering, the remembering of your heritage and God's deliverance. You have fond memories of living a booth during the fall for a few days to commemorate the time in the desert. Then all all these new people start following Jesus. And while you're glad they're doing that, you feel defensive of your traditions. I love Passover. I love the Feast of Booths. Why can't the new people do that? Why can't we keep things the way they were? I don't know. I don't think it would be a reach to say that many followers of Jesus in the first century who were Jews may have wanted an encore, as C.S. Lewis said. And can we blame them? Now imagine you're a first century Gentile. You're thrilled to follow Jesus. You see that you need a savior. You're excited to be in this new community that cares for each other and commits their life to Jesus' life, death, and teaching. You love the God of the Hebrew scriptures and want to follow him. But you have no familial or emotional connection to those feasts and signs of the covenant. You can hear it. Jesus told us to baptize, not circumcise. He gave us bread and wine, not the unleavened bread and bitter herbs. Why are these Jewish believers clinging to these old rituals? It's time to move on. Can't you imagine it? In this passage, God announces that he is doing a new thing through Paul. And Paul wants to push all his readers, Jew and Gentile, toward the notion that something new has happened. His ideas rest on the notion that the Gentiles are like wild olive branches that have been grafted into a nourishing root, verse 17. And it's essential here that we see that the root of the tree in Paul's word picture does not get replaced. It doesn't, it stays. And while natural branches branches have been removed to be replaced by wild branches, the root is steadfast. Many Jews in the first century wanted things to remain as they were. God had other plans. Many Gentiles in the first century seemed to be losing patience with their Jewish brethren, but God has an important reminder for them. It would be fascinating to know what Paul would write now regarding this complicated relationship between Jew and Gentile. The reality of anti-Semitism in our world would give him plenty to discuss, I am sure. It's worth noting that Paul never dismisses celebration of one's heritage. One of the beauties of the book of Acts, and so much of Paul's writings, is the affirmation he gives of people's ethnic heritage and traditions. He went to temple. The the disciples still did after Jesus had ascended. But these traditions should not be confused with the more important doctrines of the gospel. And as Paul makes these arguments, it's clear that there is tension not only between Jew and Gentile at large, but specifically in Rome. I want to 
to look at the two paragraphs of this passage and examine how each paragraph speaks to the different issues regarding this relationship. Verses 13 through 16, Paul is making an argue that seems more, our argument that seems more global, focusing on the overall relationship of the rejection of Jesus by the nation of Israel. And in verses 17 through 24, Paul wants to zero in his focus on Gentile believers and how they interact and feel toward ethnic Israel, both in and out of the church. I heard a preacher say regarding Romans 11 that it depicts, quote, two groups of people coming into their own fullness. This fullness, as Peter says in our, at the end of our New Testament reading, something I just kind of had to tack on, is a chosen race and a holy nation. So, verses 13 through 16. Anytime we look at a passage, it's important to, to look at what came before. Pastor Christian spoke last week about the sorrow that Paul felt for his kinsmen according to the flesh. And Paul continues his sentiments. He, he talks in verses 2 through 3 through the, the story of Elijah and how that there were some people that remained faithful to Yahweh as he makes a comparison to now, those who have carried on that tradition and are remaining faithful to the word and to who have embraced the Messiah. And, but, but Paul seems to, to see that this is a relatively small number. That's why he's sad. Verse 7, Paul says, Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. The elect obtained it, and the rest were hard, hardened. And here, the elect would be those Jewish people who had put their faith in the Messiah. Then, in verses 11 through 12, Paul channels that great providential truth that he wrote a couple chapters back in Romans 8, 28. All things work together for good. Paul asserts that through the trespass of Israel, salvation has come to the Gentiles. Then, in his Pauline way, he says, if the rejection of Israel brought this, can you imagine what their inclusion would mean? It's exciting, and I kind of wish he had told us what it would mean. He picks this up in verse 13. He focuses on the Gentiles, though the Jewish people are still central in his thought. And Paul's focus is sort of two-pronged here. He, he acknowledges that he is apostle to the Gentiles in verse 13, but he still maintains a heart for the Jews by centering the consequences of Gentile inclusion on the Jewish people. And this doesn't mean that Paul thinks the Gentiles are less somehow, but it does remind us of the place that the nation of Israel had always had in the history of salvation. The people of Israel were indeed the first to have the promises and the blessings, the covenants. And then in the book of Acts, if you notice, Paul always makes it his habit to go to the synagogue first. In every town he goes to, he always goes to the synagogue first. I came across a, a Messianic Jewish preacher on, on YouTube while I was looking at this passage and he said that the point, though, was never for them to feel like they were the chosen. Now, all of us are chosen, whether we are in the new covenant or the old covenant. There is a chosenness element to it. But the point, he said, was always to include the world in the promises of God. That was always the point. And Paul is still remembering that God has used the people of Israel to bring salvation to the world, to the Gentiles. But Paul says in verse 15 that since they rejected that, the rest of the world was reconciled. 
And he again makes the claim, as he did in verse 12, that if the rejecting accomplished reconciliation for the Gentiles, what could the inclusion mean? Then, in verse 16, Paul sort of makes, sort of builds a hinge for the argument that he's going to cover for the rest of the, the, the paragraph. If the dough offered as first fruits is holy, so is the whole lump. And if the root is holy, so are the branches. Paul's a little tough to follow here, I will admit. I was reading one commentator, and uh, it was actually a, a professor of mine at Trinity when I was at seminary, who wrote this about this verse, verse 16. The holiness of the first fruits or root makes certain the holiness of that which they affect, the batch or branches. The difficulty is ascertaining the point Paul is making. <laughs> so if a commentator said that, I suppose we can feel that way too, right? Isn't that the truth? What are you trying to say here? Well, clearly he doesn't mean every physical descendant of Abraham, but he just got saying that some of them had rejected Jesus. But based on where we go in verses 17 through 24, Paul is saying that there was a holy heritage to be honored in the faith passed on from the nation of Israel. He's making a point about the Gentile inclusion in the root or first fruits that was established by the faith of Abraham. Part of the Old Testament tradition is that Abraham's descendants would be blessed because of Abraham's trust. And perhaps that's what Paul is bringing out here. The feasts, truths, and promises of the Old Covenant pointed to Christ. And while there has been a shift of the focus to the Gentiles, the children of Israel are still somehow foundational to salvation history. So with that, in the next paragraph, Paul goes into what seems like it might be this kind of intramural struggle based on the truth he has just asserted. Since the gospel has come to the Gentiles, there could begin to be amongst the Gentiles a newfound disregard for their Jewish brethren. Paul doesn't give us a lot of exposition as to what exactly is going on in Rome. He, he's writing a personal letter, so there must be a situation he, does, he knows about that he doesn't go into but it seems like there is discord. He asserts in verse 17 that the Gentiles are like wild olive shoots. These shoots have been grafted into the pre-existing tree by the, to the root by God. And Paul is making a point about the truth of where the covenant community has come from. The church has not been replaced. It does not replace this because the root remains steadfast. But the rejection of ethnic Israel has created a situation where God has brought the Gentiles in. And the natural branches grew from what Paul calls a nourishing root, verse 17. And Paul is still saying that the descendants of Israel are the natural branches which have been trimmed off. But the rejection to Paul must not lead to arrogance on the part of the Gentiles. The root, which is not replaced, reminds us of this. Verse 18, Paul reminds the Gentiles that the root supports them, not vice versa. The promises, prophetic tradition, and the scripture all came to them from Israel. And the Gentiles are standing, and therefore we now are standing on the shoulders of giants. The Gentiles had and have no right to become proud or judgmental toward ethnic Israel. Then, in verse 19, Paul anticipates an argument that they might have. They were broken off so that I could be grafted in. 
they being the natural branches. Paul is putting words into the mouth of a Gentile believer and showing pride in that assertion. But then Paul reminds them why those original natural branches were broken off. Verse 20, they were broken off due to unbelief, but you stand fast through faith. Do not become proud, but fear. Paul reminds his Gentile readers that they must stand fast in faith and humility. If God, after all his years of love and care toward the children of Israel, was willing to trim them and cast them aside to graft you in, how much more will he do the same to you and become, if you become arrogant and forget that the root holds you up? And if in his power he can graft wild olive branches into this root, how much more will the natural branches be grafted back into their own olive tree? Verses 21 through 22, Paul demands that his Gentile readers note the kindness and the severity of God. There's comfort in his kindness and a warning in his severity. No question. Verse 23 reminds us that they, meaning the natural branches, ethnic Israel, were cut off due to unbelief. And that means that God has the power to graft them in if they believe. Verse 24, for if you were cut off from what is by nature a wild olive tree and grafted contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these, the natural branches, be grafted in to their own olive tree? To Paul, the key to all, Jew and Gentile, is humility. Recognize who you are. Don't be arrogant. Don't confuse God's grace with somehow with your goodness or status. You are grafted in due to God's kindness. And as Peter says, you are a chosen race and a holy nation. Now, it would be strange to not acknowledge that this tree is made up of all different kinds of branches. God made all these kinds of branches. People from all over the world have become a part of this holy nation. There is an essential unity, and it is based on God's kindness and our resting in him, not in who our parents are. All of our readings, in fact, if you listen to the Isaiah and Matthew readings as well, touch on God being revealed to people outside of ethnic Israel. Since I'm speaking to a crowd today, mainly made up of Gentiles, I want to briefly think about a couple of ways this passage speaks to us. How we can honor the notion that we are wild branches grafted onto the root to make one tree. First, let's read our Old Testament. Or as I like to call it, the Hebrew Scriptures. God did indeed choose the nation of Israel to be his covenant people. He gave them feasts, prophecies, and covenants that give us the background and story to fully understand the significance of the coming of Jesus. Why was he born in Bethlehem? Why does he go to Jerusalem so much? What's Isaiah talking about in his reading? What's it all about? Get to know Jesus better by knowing his word to the Hebrew nation. 
And second, we should recognize the way that we as the church have not been the humble, wild branches we should have been. So many of our ancestors in the faith have fallen prey to the sin of anti-Semitism. And this comes from pride. And it feels like this is part of what Paul is warning the Gentiles about. When Paul says not to be arrogant in verse 18, it almost feels as though he is anticipating where this might go. We as humans tend to become proud of our own. Saints we admire, such as Jerome, Augustine, Luther, all went on record at times, unfortunately, with anti-Semitic sentiments. Reading their passages, one can only be reminded of how much all of us must remain humble. We are so vulnerable to pride, and if we, we don't have reason for this before in the history of the church, all we need to do is look at the 20th century to remind us of the need to place the destiny of the ethnic Israeli people in the hands of God. We must pray for them, love them as our neighbors, and treat them with respect. And this does not mean that any critique of the modern Israeli state is anti-Semitic, nor does it mean that these folks are not accountable to Jesus any more than anyone else. But the track record of the church has not been what it should be. But as bad as anti-Semitism is, it's not the root issue. The root is sinful pride. We cannot be who we were made to be if we do not humble ourselves. Who are we? We are, as Simon, son of Jonah, better known by his Greek name, Peter, said in our reading, we are one chosen race, one holy nation. God has grafted us into that nation. How are we acknowledging our heritage of the root and loving our neighbors, including those who are Jewish, in humility? How are we staying humble? And when things begin to change that aren't essential to the gospel, do we want an encore, as C.S. Lewis said? So many powerful stories have come out of the story of the Jewish people during the 20th century, and I wanted to close my teaching this morning with a story and a quote which demonstrates godly humility and loyalty to the gospel. One day in the middle of the 20th century, a Nobel Prize-winning author, French author by the name of Francois Mariac, sat down to be interviewed by a young Jewish reporter writing for a Tel Aviv paper. Moriach had witnessed the exportation of many Jews from his hometown during the war. The young Jewish man began his interview. The protectiveness that Moriach often felt when he was granting an interview to the press left him. And they spoke of deeper things. Of this young boy who had grown up in the beautiful Carpathian Mountains in the town of Siget, Romania. Of his deep love for his Jewish faith and heritage and how that young man's faith in the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob had died in the dreadful camps. As Moriach listened to that young man's awful story, it humbled him. And it showed him a deep truth about the gospel. And he encouraged his young interviewer to write down his experiences. Years later, when that young Jewish man named Eli Wiesel 
penned his classic memoir, Night, he asked Francois Mariac to write the foreword. In it, Mariac wrote this. And I, who believe God is love, what answer could I give my young questioner? What did I say to him? Did I speak of that other Jew, his brother, who may have resembled him? The crucified, whose cross has conquered the world? Did I affirm that the stumbling block to his faith was the cornerstone of mine, and that the conformity between the cross and the suffering of men was in my eyes the key to that impenetrable mystery whereon the faith of his childhood had perished? If the eternal is the eternal, the last word for each one of us belongs to him. This is what I should have told this Jewish child, but I could only embrace him, weeping. Let's pray. God of Israel, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, Prince of Peace, Sar Shalom, Yeshua, Jesus, thank you so much for the wonderful heritage you've given us. Help us to love it, to embrace it, to understand it, and to understand how the story that you have brought us into is something that we can be a part of because of your grace. And we pray, we pray and plead for us to be humble before you. Thank you so much, Jesus, for your, your grace and your life. Holy Spirit, come upon us. Give us new understanding and thankfulness for this wonderful story. Amen.